Hey, hey all. My name is Robert. And my name is Michael. And this is the Variety Show with Michael and Robert. Simple enough. This is episode one. We're just going to jump into the foray. We figured since everyone else was jumping in and making their own podcast that we would do as well. And the inspiration for this podcast was we were amused by our conversations and we thought maybe other people would be interested in hearing about them. Yeah. So let's, let's get into it. Let's do uh, it. Yeah. So you were telling me about this video you found called how to get rich from running a charity. Uh, <laughs> the dark secret behind those Omaze giveaways. Uh, yeah. So like wh- what made you think about talking about this? I think if anyone has been on YouTube and has not had any ad blockers on, I know that that is very few and far between, but if you didn't have any ad blockers on, you may have seen these videos advertising sweepstakes. Enter to win a sprinter van, enter to win a million dollars and help out a nonprofit organization. And this company yeah. that does this is Omaze. I've definitely seen it. I remember when Game of Thrones was big, I saw like hang out with Amelia Clark and the video was really good, but I was like, nah, this is it's too good to be true. I think I saw it on Instagram. Yeah, it was I don't know when they started actually. When when the video started coming on, but they are really great at marketing. Their videos are top notch. And they get a lot of great guest appearances and celebrities, as you mentioned, with Amelia Clark. So I decided I actually entered one of the sweepstakes. I didn't win, but I was curious onto their business model. Is it really as beneficial as one might seem or one might think? And that's why I stumbled upon this YouTube video or the dark secret behind Omaze giveaways. I feel like if you won, we might not be talking about this. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. It might have been a different spin, i.e. how Amaze is amazing and got me my sprinter van. Yeah. The, the, the video, like a couple things stuck out to me, but like one of the things that stuck out to me is like the very, very small odds of winning. Um, I don't remember his specific calculation, but it was like in terms of like payout over a period of time, like assuming you do, you enter on a regular basis, like it was lower than scratch off tickets in the lottery, which is not enheartening because like scratch off tickets are, are fun. Don't get me wrong, but I feel like I never win anything. Exactly. And for our listeners who haven't seen the video, it basically in a brief summary, Michael, I don't know if you want to summarize it, if you have your notes right there. Yeah, um, so I watched it uh, a couple of days ago. Basically, like like you said, Omaze is this platform that helps you give to charities ostensibly. But what they don't tell you is that Omaze is actually for profit. It represents nonprofits, but it itself is not a nonprofit. So it's kind of like how Airbnb associates you with all these rentals but like it is not a rental company um they spend a lot of money on marketing like idris elba daniel craig amelia clark everybody's in their videos um 
one way they're able like to to do this legally is the lotteries that they run are not actually run by Omaze. They're run by the charities. Uh, Omaze just markets them. Um, the first sign indicated to me that these things were sleazy in his video was that when they were going to create it, they went to all their law professors and asked them if it was legal until they found one that said it was. Yeah, it was. Um, and then it, the video dives a little bit deeper into like what percentage of your your money is actually going to charity and the way it breaks it down is like if you give ten dollars uh seven dollars and fifty cents goes to like admin type stuff one dollar and fifty cents goes to omaze and the remaining dollar fifty goes to the charity so it's a very small percentage so like if you give a hundred dollars you're only giving the charity fifteen dollars uh, which sounds kind of sucky and and like an inefficient use of spending but the marketing answer as the guy describes from omaze is that it's a smaller fraction of your giving yes but it lowers the barrier so much that they're getting money from all kinds of different people way more broadly than just you know like the big the deep pocketed people who might give to charities more formally on a regular basis so with a bigger pool even though it's a lower percentage they're, they're trying to say that the charities are getting more um while that's all fine and dandy, he then goes on to say that, like, the quote-unquote real answer is that he has he, there's a little skepticism about what these charities actually are, whether or not they're legit. And there's certainly some legit ones on there that can be verified, but there's certain there also seem to be ones that are run by Omaze under the table. Um, and he ends the video by saying, it's a hybrid between gambling and giving to charity, and it doesn't, it kind of half-asses both of them. If you want to gamble, go to Vegas. If you want to give to charity, give to charity. But maybe Omaze isn't the best way to do either one of those things. So <laughs> he ends it by saying, you know, make your own decision, but Omaze isn't for him. Yeah, I think that's a great summary of the video. That, you know, they marry these two. You feel good giving to charity. But you also are slightly incentivized because, hey, I could win something. There's a potential to win something. And you dangle that carrot. Yeah, Even like if the odds are really, really low. Yeah, I feel like it's manipulating our sense of guilt, our sense of charity, and our, sen- our incentives against us. Like It, it lowers the bar so much um, to give. It's like microtransactions on a phone game or whatever, so that it doesn't it does it's not a huge cognitive hurdle for me to give a couple dollars to Omaze to give to this charity. And it also makes the assumption that like you're not gonna do the research to figure out what specific charity you want to give to and how the money's being spent. And so by doing that, they're able to spend it essentially very inefficiently um, in ways that you might not approve of if you were to actually put the time into it (laughs) that was my sense another company banking on the laziness of their contributors (laughs) or participants yeah or like it's maybe it's not even laziness maybe it's just like i don't have time but i want to do something what can i do yeah i think it really piggybacks off this idea of social media activism yeah, that's what it really 
kind of like I made it an association with because with social media activism, you want to feel as if you're doing something and it's such a low barrier to appear as if you are supporting or doing something to support a cause, but it really doesn't go that far other than just kind of spread awareness to your followers. Right. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, which which kind of leads into my, like, the next thing I wanted to talk to you about. So, like, I like Omaze. Um, I don't like how it's manipulating me, but, like, if I want to give to charity, it's better than nothing. So then it becomes, like, do I want to worry about perfectly giving to charity or maybe having this imperfect solution that you know, may or may not be good enough. Um, I I stumbled upon this YouTube channel recently called Wheezy Waiter. It's this guy who's been making YouTube videos for about a decade now. He's got about a million followers. And he made this video called uh, Why Perfectionism, Why Perfectionism Will Destroy You and Everything You Love. Uh, and his, his titles are always clickbaity, but his videos are always super thought-provoking to me. Did you get a chance to watch that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I definitely watched it. I didn't identify with it as much, but I thought there were a lot of good topics that he brought up and good points that he made throughout the video. So for listeners who are not familiar with it, basically, Michael, you teed it up for me, but the argument that perfectionism is bad for you, that it will be the downfall of you and everyone around you. (laughs) <laughs> and he he lays in a very well thought out argument that for him, so first let's define, he defines perfectionism. Perfectionism being the fear of not being great. Not that something is perfect, but the fear of not being great and the fear of being average. And he said, you know, yes, he acknowledges that some sense of perfectionism has led him to success in certain aspects of his life. For example, being an editor, he feels that being a perfectionist helps him to be a really good editor because you're kind of going back in time and changing things to be more perfect. However, then the bulk of the video is him explaining disadvantages. For example, his perfectionism has prevented him from trying things, starting a screenplay, doing things because it's not perfect. It doesn't meet his standard of greatness. It's just average. And he goes on to list a variety of things, like why you shouldn't strive for perfectionism. Perfectionism doesn't exist. It prevents you from starting things. It prevents you from being proactive, finishing things, having fun, because you're constantly thinking about the product that should be perfect. It creates anxiety. And it makes you hard to take critique or criticism. And it makes you a really hard critic because you are constantly striving for this very, very high, extremely high standard, almost an unattainable standard. Would you say that's a good explanation of the video? Yeah, I think that sums it up pretty well. Um, You know, I took some of his advice, you know, walking, meditating, journaling, whatever, but like, I really relate to this and identify with this because it's like, um, 
we talk all, all the time. We've always got like our conversations always seem to go down these different rabbit holes. Like you and I are both very curious people and we've always got something we're working on or something that we want to work on. And I, I mean, I admire you because I know that you're always working on something. Me, I'm always, I, I always feel like I'm like planning to start something or I'm like trying to find the energy to do something. But like, I always get hung up on that planning phase and so I've really put a lot of thought recently into like historically I've always done plan then start but now I'm thinking more how about I start and then plan and it's, it sounds really simple but he even talks about it on his video which is like most people start something you know nothing creative starts out great so they start something and then you kind of make discoveries about how you want to steer it as you're actually working on it right so like this podcast for instance we we could have started out by planning perfectly how we wanted to produce it what we wanted to talk about scripts all this stuff but rather than do that on the front end we're just going to figure it out as we go see what happens and try to have some fun with it right yeah 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 but uh, I don't know. It's it's interesting to hear that perspective because I think that I am on the other side. Yeah, I want to create a good product, but I jump in a lot of times feet first with very little to no preparation. And at times that has burned me. So I think it's having this idea of perfectionism. While it's not attainable, I think it should be more related to maybe preparation. Like you want the product to be good, so you prepare, right? You plan. Some people get stuck on that planning because they have this idea of perfectionism that the, that first try should be perfect. And so they get stuck in that planning phase. But I do think that there is some planning that needs to be involved whenever you try and attempt something or an endeavor like we're doing with the podcast. We didn't just jump in. We actually... Michael, you did some preparation, and I did. We talked about what articles we wanted to do. We sent them to each other. We read them. So there was preparation involved. Can we? Can I stop you right there? So, like, I've thought about this, too. Um, you, you're kind of using the words plan and prepare interchangeably. And, you know, maybe that's fair. But And, and maybe there's not a better word for, it, word for it. But something I've been thinking about recently is, like, what is the goal of planning? Like, I mean, I'm a project manager in my day job and essentially what they asked me to do is to plan the projects that I work on from start to finish before we even start. Um, and then they don't ask me to like prepare the project before from start to finish. Prepare is more like what needs to happen to get me off on the right foot. Whereas I view planning as like what needs to happen to get this to completion. So like I am all hundred percent on board with like, what do I need to do to get over that next hurdle? But I'm not worried about the hurdles all the way down the road or even next week. I just want to be ready for the next ones that are coming up. And if there's ones in the future, sure. I can manage the risks associated with those to make sure I don't, they're not bigger than they need to be when I get there. But for me, if I'm going to keep moving forward, I just need to focus on like what's in front of my face and make sure I'm prepared for that. You know what I mean? Uh, let's see. 
Um, maybe I'm overthinking it. Uh, no, I, I think it's good to have a distinction. There is a reason why they're two separate words in the English dictionary. Yeah, yeah. Like I don't, I don't know if that's the specific definition of those two words. I mean, I think about that a lot, right? Because in different languages, there's like, like in Greek, I think there's like six words for love, but in English, it's just love, and so like you, you miss all the different variations. I'm not implying the Greeks were like project managers who had like 10 words for planning and preparation, but like, that's just an example with the love thing. Um, you know, you see a lot of it in like cognitive psychology too, with how we describe what's going on in our brains. We just don't do a very good job as humans with talking and thinking about intangible things. Um, you know, so when things end up getting messy um, or flexible or nebulous, you know, it, 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 it brings up that balance of like, it, I don't know, it just gets my mind working and I'm trying to come up with some kind of shitty segue into the next thing we're going to talk about, <laughs> which <laughs> well, is your I, other article. I honestly think that, if you have there should be when when you're a perfectionist i I feel like you get stuck in the planning phase okay would you say that that's true you're you're constantly trying to create a roadmap well yeah maybe that's not the case it, it, do you think that's the case would you speak to that that planning is is getting stuck or quagmired within the planning stage Yes. So you never start it? Yeah, for sure. And I think I try to proactively put up safeguards to prevent problems that are going to occur before the problems actually occur. And that slows me down. So is that the preparation? So preparation is anticipating obstacles, and then you plan for those things you prepare for. I think it it depends on how far out the... Uh, the things are like if I'm going on a 10 hour road trip, I'm going to get gas before I get on the road. I'm not going to plan all the different gas stations. I'm going to stop it on the, on the ride. You know what I mean? I see. There's some uncertainty. Like I might end up in New Mexico in the desert and there might be some gaps between the gap, the gas stations at that point. But in general, they're pretty close and I'm comfortable with that amount of uncertainty. Once, you know, when we get out to the future, in some cases, certainly when I'm driving, but when it comes to like planning some activity or project that I want to, you know, get started on, I think about it completely differently. Hmm. Yeah, one of the notes that I had that I scribbled down was if perfectionism is getting quagmired in the planning and the preparation stage. Right. You prepare for everything. You want to try and prepare for all the little negatives that could happen with your product or the process, and you try and plan for them, and you get quagmired in the planning in your pursuit of perfectionism. Then you never start anything. But if you go the reverse way and you never plan and you just ride by the seat of your pants, that's also a downside. <laughs> in my mind, that's a downside because you just wouldn't know where you're going and you have no real roadmap. You're just, you're just kind of throwing everything together at the last minute. 
And some things you may, if you just give it a little thought, you would have anticipated those problems. You would have prepared for them in your planning stage. Okay. So is it like basically that what you're saying is if you don't have a plan, you're going to, there's going to be extra entropy, right? You're going to be losing a lot of energy that's not ultimately going to get you anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. So it's this balance, if you will, between going for it and acknowledging that there's chaos in the world. Yeah. And then over controlling the situation and preparing for literally everything to the point where you don't do anything. That that's the balance that I think is yeah. what you need to well balance. <laughs> yeah, I, I I like that. I like that. Which I think is a good segue into the next article I, <laughs> I brought up. <laughs> Uh, which was about flexible work hours and how it was an article that really caught my attention because one, yes, we are in COVID and people have probably mentioned this a million times, but it's really changing the way people work. And we're, as a society, we are evaluating this nine to five work week. I think we were evaluating it before but it definitely was accelerated. The conversation around the nine to five work week was accelerated during COVID when people had to telecommute and you couldn't have those set work hours. Right. It was harder and, and, to enforce. Right. And just for everybody who might be listening, all one of you, um, both of us telecommute, right? I do. <laughs> and you still do. Yes. Right. You're a hundred percent remote, right? Even if, the vid yeah, I'm 100% remote, even if they come back in the office. Right. And to me, it's really fascinating. And I'm surprised that we haven't really had this conversation earlier because for those listening, this article on flexible working hours was very skewed, I would say, or biased toward the benefits of flexible working hours and telecommuting. But what I found most interesting about this article was that where did the nine to five work day come from? It came from a shift in attitude from a 12 hour work day. And it was adopted rapidly because the Ford Motor Company institutionalized a nine to five work day, productivity increased. And so other businesses wanted to emulate that in order to boost productivity. That's where we are now. Right. They came together with the unions and basically, I'm sure they didn't sit down and scientifically think through how they could get more productivity. They probably figured out that, you know, with the assembly line or whatever, and then the unions pushing for the workers' rights, there was some happy medium. And I I feel like they must have been pleasantly surprised by the productivity piece. It's like, oh, shit, when people sleep, they do good work. <laughs> people aren't robots. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Sounds counterintuitive, right? If people work less, they actually get more productivity. Yeah. Uh, I go into every single day. Like I, I work not nine to five, but nine to six generally with a little bit of time for there and there for lunch. And my objective is to get at least five quality hours of work every day. 
because if I try to stretch myself to that full nine hours every single day and don't allow any flexibility, um, let's just say I'm not a robot. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's burnout to consider. There's the push and pull of your personal life and your professional life. Not to mention the the push and pull within your professional life. Like my work as a consultant is very up and down in terms of the the intensity that's required. I, I do what I can to stabilize it, but like it's just not going to be the same when I'm in a certain period of a project compared to like a go live weekend or whatever, where the expectation is that everything is critical and we've got to be on top of every single little thing, right? So would you say that your this article outlined quite a few benefits for the employees? I'll just rattle them off really quickly. And I want you to talk to them and see if you identify them, identify sure. with them. So the first one that they talked about was enhanced efficiency. Basically, the idea that if you allow people to work at their hours where they're most productive or have the least distraction instead of nine to five, then they're going to be more efficient with their work hours. Yeah. So the first three, I kind of lumped together. So the enhanced efficiency, like you said, distraction free and improved health and wellness. So distraction free, I'll just say out of the gate, my home is not less distracting than work. (laughs) My PlayStation is right next to me. And it calls to me. Uh, and then the way I interpret the enhanced efficiency by scheduling work around your energy. I mean, frankly, uh, it's nice to be able to do some of my chores in the middle of the workday. Like I can just start a little laundry. It takes two minutes and I don't have to worry about it. And then I can fold it when I'm done with work or whatever. But like. I wouldn't necessarily phrase it exactly like this. Basically, my interpretation is working from home is nice because if I'm tired, I can take a nap. And then when I am done with that nap, I can come back to work and have like a great two hour surge because of that. Or, you know, like if I'm, you know, if I'm one of those people who like needs to take care of my kid during the day, for example, I don't have any kids, but like, let's say hypothetically, I can wait till the kid goes to sleep and then I can work at night when there truly are fewer distractions. I just turn off the light, you know, put on my headphones, everyone else is asleep and I just pound out some scheduling, planning, whatever it is for my job on my computer. So mm-hmm. that's how I would think about it. Um, the next couple things on there were like better time management, improved engagement, promoting work-life balance and higher job satisfaction. Um, my interpretation of those things were, like, I don't know, it kind of sounded like this person, like, I agree with a lot of what they're saying, but it sounded like the categories are kind of overlapping, like better time management. I associate very much with that first one, which is like enhanced efficiency for scheduling work around when you have energy. Mm-hmm. Um, promoting work-life balance. I mean, yes, I'm at home. <laughs> so like my work and life are balanced it becomes more important to balance them right because it's very easy to slip into working all the time mm-hmm. uh, i've had to establish very strict boundaries um, the other thing that stuck out to me for sure was the lack of commute i think everyone agrees with that and it's nice to save some money on gas 
And then the last bullet they had was for the employees was higher job satisfaction. And while I agree, I don't necessarily view that as a point in and of itself. I think that's a result of all the other points. So by like not having to commute, by being able to work when I want to work or when it makes sense, or maybe, you know, maybe I, I take a nap in the middle of the day and I expect that I'll make that time up either a different day or later in the day, or, you know, maybe after watching an episode of Ted Lasso at night, I can answer some emails to balance it out. Like it's interesting because this article tries to put structure around the points to describe Mm -hmm. something that is flexible. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's pretty ironic. Yeah. I guess writing still needs to have its structure. Yeah. Well, but you're not saying that flexible working hours are non-structured. You mentioned that you really have to have that work-life balance and set those boundaries. Yeah, it's almost like it's structured for me, but how it's structured for me might be different from how it's structured for you and Bob and Jennifer and everybody else, right? So Mm -hmm. there's parts where we for sure have to overlap. Like somebody's got to be working from probably eight to five every day. But there's also room for people to work from 12 to 8 or 5 to 12, you know, as long as there's overlap when it's necessary. Like, ultimately, it doesn't really matter all that much when you're doing your work, if I'm able to do my work. I think that's the question, you know, is as companies go more into telecommuting and have flexible working hours, you do lose some of the chemistry that occurs that happens in the office. For example, if I'm struggling with something, yeah, I can ping you, but is it the same as having someone ask you directly and then someone in the next cubicle over here pipe up and, and contribute to the conversation? Saying, yeah. hey, I experienced that thing. I would consider X, Y, Z. Yeah, that's that bullshit word that the executives came up with called propinquity. Have you heard, I've of, heard it? of that one? Yeah, that. But I'd never heard of it. But that's the word they started throwing around at the beginning of the vid to justify their expectation. Like we're just getting around to giving people jeans in the office. I think they're just resistant to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's. I mean, there example. is something that there is something to be said about the dynamic and one-off conversations that you can have in the office but i also think those conversations can be very distracting which goes against the first bullet point of enhanced efficiency because you don't have people talking around your cubicle and distracting you or pulling in you into conversations that maybe you can or cannot contribute to it allows a worker to focus and increase their productivity Yes. I, I think it's one of those things that's hard to measure, right? Because I might be walking to get a glass of water and one of my colleagues is struggling with something who I don't normally interact with directly and we're just talking and then he or she's like, oh, I'm really having a problem with this particular issue and because they work on a different product, I would never think to reach out to them or they would never think to reach out to me, but because we have that that interaction, that opportunity for serendipity, 
I'm able then to help them. And like, can you really quantify all those different conversations that are happening? I mean, yeah, sure. Sometimes Zach and I play foosball. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, the same goes for that, too. Like, people might stop by and talk to us, or he works in engineering and I work in project management. You know, there's definitely times when our two groups work together. So there's room for Zach and I to talk about that kind of stuff. Maybe we get go more into this because I'm actually really fascinated about this topic. Okay. About virtual replicating something in office and virtual can and can you not do that? Or do we just have to accept they're completely different environments and how do we create those serendipitous conversations in a remote or telecommuting experience? But that's, that's for another conversation. Maybe that's for another episode, but I, I'm really curious and interested about virtual meeting and how do you optimize telecommunicating between teams, team dynamics, having promoting those serendipitous interactions between different departments because they're physically present with each other. Yeah. Basically answering the question of like, what do you get out of video chats and what's missing? And for the stuff that's missing, what's, is there an answer? Uh, so well summarized. Thank yeah. you. Thanks, Michael. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> um, you just want to get into the last one we've got here? Yeah, let's just jump right into it. We're not going to do any segue or transition. I don't know how to transition to that. Maybe that's something we'll do next time. <laughs> yeah, well, let's give you a break. Hashtag self-care. Don't beat yourself up. <laughs> yeah, so this last article was one I found in the dumpster smut pit that is medium i love medium as a publishing and distribution platform but most because it's so easy and the barrier of entry is so low so much of it's garbage but (laughs) i found this little gem hidden in there about how self-care has basically been weaponized against people Uh, i think the title of the article is that self-care is a scam basically uh hashtag self-care is you know the sarcastic term that he refers to it as reduces an important topic to wine in the bubble bath. And the image at the top of the article is a stock photo of a girl facing the other direction, looking out the window in a, this like freestanding bathtub with a glass <laughs> of red wine in her glass. You know, it looks great. You know, it's, it's like every TikTok you've ever seen. But uh, his argument, his thesis is basically that the, self, the hashtag self-care that you see is actually promoting a culture of indulgence and it's a marketing ploy whether people think of it or not where companies that offer loungewear wine bathtubs you know travel opportunities are encouraging you to overindulge um to make yourself feel good so like basically they're emphasizing they're weaponizing your sense of like short-term gain against you to help their bottom line and it's a slippery slope. Um, it gives you an excuse to be lazy. Uh, you know, you're considering your short term over your long term, which isn't isn't going to be good for you in the long term. And they've conflated like your sense of like what's good for you with indulgence, which makes it really hard to call out anybody. Um, because if you call out somebody for overindulging when they're doing it for hashtag self-care um people consider it as if you're challenging their mental health 
if you do it online, you're going to get attacked by other people. If you do it privately, um, the way the conversation is had these days, it's just, it's going to start. It's got a high chance of starting from that place, which is, you know, which is just a, a mess. Um, yeah. hey, just real quick before I give you a chance, I'll, the rest of it, he says, is, he's like, so what's the answer? Basically, his perspective on the answer is that self-care is not the right word. It should be called recovery, right? So like small mistakes are okay, um, but you want to get the big things, the long-term stuff right. So like if you're going out, you're working out at the gym every day of the week, and you've got an established lifestyle as such, it's okay every once in a while if you maybe tweak your hamstring to stop and get some ice cream and watch some TV. Likewise, if you're sitting at home on the couch all day every day, uh, you know, a little bit of moderation is not in moderation is not a bad idea, but maybe the the correct self care or recovery for you is to get up and walk around every once in a while. You're gonna help with your bone density. A lot of science has proven that getting out and walking is great for your mental health. In the end, it's all about balance. <laughs> I think you did a great job summarizing the article for our listeners. I completely agree with this. think that definitely consumerism and hashtag self-care have become one. <laughs> and that self-indulgence. Because it preys, like you said, on our short-term, short-term happiness at the expense of our long-term well-being and happiness as well. For example, yeah, heck, it's a lot easier to go and have a beer instead of doing the dishes. But, you know, the next day I'm going to have a hangover and I will have no dishes done. And that's going to cause me stress or anxiety because the place I live in is not clean. That's yeah. And yeah. And like example. maybe your partner has like, you have an unspoken agreement that you're going to be the one who does the dishes and you know, you're not going to get divorced or whatever over not doing the dishes one night, but like life is a series of moments accumulated over time. And in every moment you can either make a good decision or a bad decision. And that doesn't mean it's, it's not necessarily always that binary. And like what is good isn't always good and what's bad isn't always bad, right? Like we were talking about. Like it's mm-hmm. okay to get ice cream sometimes. But like that nuance there's no room for that nuance in advertising. And it it even goes back to the Omaze thing at the beginning. Basically these people these quote unquote people, whatever, like in marketing are brilliant because they're conflating things that are important to us with things that are important to them and it boosts their bottom line. Yeah. I don't really Uh, have too much more to say about this article, to be honest. It just, it really hit and I completely agree with a lot of the things that it was saying. Yeah. I'll say this then. So like, there's this internet personality, you know, cult of personality warnings, all that stuff. Be careful who you listen to. This guy's name is Ryan Holiday. He is so sleazy. 
But just because a person's sleazy doesn't mean they can't be right about some things. And have you ever heard of him? No, I'm looking him up right now. <laughs> yeah, so he's a couple years older than us, mid-30s. He became the head of marketing for American Apparel at a very young age, like 18, 19, dropped out of college and that stuff. And he ended up leaving that world. He wrote a book called Trust Me, I'm Lying. He's written several books this time. Basically, his whole platform these days is repackaging stoic ideology written by like Epictetus, Seneca, and Marcus Aurelius into more modern terminology. So basically not creating anything new, just repackaging it, making it more accessible for people, mm. which I think is actually fine. Like, the, it's good for him to be able to get paid for that. I wish I had thought of that idea. <laughs> but, his, but his first book is called Trust Me, I'm Lying. And I haven't personally read it yet. And to be honest, he's not the best writer in the world. He's kind of, he, he gives anecdote after anecdote after anecdote. But hey, you know, people like it when Malcolm Gladwell does it. So I don't know why they wouldn't like it when this other guy does it. Maybe some of these could be <laughs> articles instead of books. But basically, the book, it's on my list. I, I got it checked out in Libby right now, is how the media, whether it's like guerrilla marketing formal ad advertisements is just weaponized against you it's like a propaganda machine and i'm really interested in in reading more about it and learning about it wow that's definitely something that i'd like to read i mean it, it makes sense right we as humans we have certain programmings if you will mm -hmm. and marketers basically are just hijacking that yeah, and, um, and it's it's fine. I mean, I don't know if it's fine, but it is definitely something that they do, because at the end of the day, they're trying to get you to buy a product that they want. And however they do that, most of the time is hijacking a lot of these innate behaviors, exactly, or pro pre-programmed behaviors in us. Yep. Uh, another book, like if you're looking for the quote-unquote intellectual option. Uh, I haven't read this one either, but it's also on my list. It's probably a little more dense. It's called Manufacturing Consent by Noam Chomsky. Have you ever heard of him? Yeah, I have. Is that Noam Chomsky? He's like a super famous like linguist. Um, okay. I think That's the book I was, was like, written. That... Go ahead. The book was written in uh, the eighties, I believe, ish. That's probably not exactly right, but basically. Uh, it talks about how the media, it, he's talking about like the traditional media steers public discourse and, and thought. And I first heard about the book through the podcast Philosophize This with Stephen West. He did an episode on it. I recommend anybody go listen to that because it's, it's awesome. But that would be another alternative to trust me, I'm lying. Nice. Yeah, Michael, always pulling out the good recommendations. <laughs> I wish I'd read them. Then I'd sound more credible. <laughs> hey, that's actually a good idea. Uh, so we've talked about the articles. Before we go, what's something you read recently? A book. A book. Oh, man. Well, right now on my read list... And it has been for a little bit, so I need to fin finish it. But it's The Art of Gathering, which is 
a book all about how to be a good host, how to plan events that have a purpose and a meaning, and can even extend to calling corporate meetings or business meetings. How do you, how to create a well-run meeting or event? And I found it really interesting because, I mean, Michael, we've both been in the corporate world. There are meetings that should have been an email or meetings where you wonder why you're there. And it's a book that helps to train you to make those experiences better and not have participants feel as if, why was I there? So that's what I'm reading. That's actually, I've never heard of it. Uh, I actually was clued into it from uh, Freakonomics. They had an episode about how to make meetings better. And this was one of the books that they suggested. So I'm I'm taking their advice and I'm letting everyone know and all the listeners know that they should listen to it if they're interested. Cool. Cool. Um, One thing I just finished reading is a book called Show Your Work. It's pretty easy and quick. It's by Austin Kleon. Have you ever heard of it? Nope. So basically the premise is if you're interested in creating anything, particularly in the realm of what's considered content these days, whether it's audio, visual, literature, whatever, um, a lot of people hesitate to do it because they're afraid to be cast as a self-promoter. And he just encourages you in a bunch of different ways about why that's not necessarily a bad thing. Like, Hmm. you know, shoot your shot, Hamilton style. You know, like, if you you got something that you think is worthwhile to say, sure, you might not say it going back to the perfection thing. You might not say it perfectly starting out. But, like, anything that's worth doing, anything that's going to ultimately be great starts out terrible and it just takes time to put in the work to make it better. And like, there's no sense in working really hard on something in a dark room for nobody to appreciate it. Right. Like you gotta, you gotta be willing to put it out there to the world. And if people do not like it or then that's great. That That's a reaction. Like it means that it's worth their attention for them to consider it. If they like it, that's, that's even better. So, yeah, I read that. It was super quick and easy, but, like, it really encouraged me uh, in the context of this and in the context of some other stuff that I'm working on. Nice. That's something I definitely wanted to read, if, especially as a short read. I already have quite a few books that I need to get that I are on my reading list, and you've added a couple more. So I'm really looking forward to reading those. Cool. Do we got anything else for these people today? I don't think so. I would say if you're listening and this is your first time listening, stick with us. This this podcast is going to evolve. I know it will. And if you like it, subscribe. If you want to leave us some feedback on what we could do better, I think, Michael, I'm open to hearing about it. Are you open to hearing about it? Uh, well, I am not a perfectionist, I guess. So like, <laughs> I promise I'll do my best at receiving it. Yeah, we're just looking to try this out and maybe next time we'll do something with less serious topics. Who knows? It is a variety show. Yeah. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. The, you know, I mean, 
we, it is funny that we picked stuff that's super serious to start. I think <laughs> we, we just wanted to find stuff that was intellectually stimulating to us, and that's just where we went. Yeah, yeah. Well, so tune in, keep keep listening, and give us your feedback. Subscribe, and keep on this journey with us. Mike, yeah, do you have it, anything else you say? Uh, maybe we should create a place for people to give us feedback outside of reviews i don't know if that means like a twitter account maybe it's just a twitter account where we just publish the rss feed and then we can get people to go there that would be a good idea we obviously don't have a handle right now but we can get one created for next time if that's what we want to (laughs) do who cares we'll just do what we want see what sticks yeah no worries definitely well, I'm excited to keep this going. I was really excited to have this conversation. I'm really hoping that the listeners out there enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, thanks for sticking with us for this long. And that concludes our 15-minute conversation. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye, all. Bye.